This is the RTE News at One with Brian Dobson. Good afternoon. The headlines this Thursday lunchtime. The family of an Irish citizen who was being held in jail in Iraq say the charges are to be dropped. Ireland has fined two and a half million euro over delays in implementing online safety rules. And dozens of Palestinians are reported to have been killed while waiting for food aid in Gaza. The news in detail with Brian Jennings. The family of an Irish citizen who was being held in jail in Iraq say the charges he was facing are to be dropped. Anti-corruption advocate Yasser El-Jabouri, who holds an Irish passport, was arrested on Monday morning at Baghdad Airport. Fergal O'Brien reports. Since the early hours of Monday morning when Yasser El-Jabouri was arrested in Iraq, his family have been campaigning for his release to allow him to return to Ireland. This morning, the father of three appeared in court again in Baghdad. In a statement, his family said he was informed the charges against him are to be dropped. The anti-corruption advocate, who was in Iraq for a family reunion and to visit his ailing mother, has also been released on bail. However, his family said the Iraqi authorities have retained his Irish passport. They say he was informed there are two to three days of paperwork to complete before he will be allowed to leave the country. Mr. El Jabouri's wife, Laura Wickham, has thanked the Tonishta Michal Martin and the Department of Foreign Affairs for their help. But she has called on the Irish government to keep up the pressure and make it clear to the Iraqi authorities that the case is not over until Yasser is safely home in Ireland. The EU Court of Justice has imposed a fine of 2.5 million euro in Ireland over delays in implementing online safety rules. The court said that in addition to the fine, it is also ordering Ireland to pay a daily penalty of €10,000 for as long as it fails to comply with the directive. The Department of Media said it accepts the judgment. Our work and technology correspondent, Brian O'Donovan. The European Commission requires that member states bring online video sharing platforms under the scope of its Audiovisual Media Services Directive. It's designed to combat hate speech and to protect children from harmful content online. The Irish media regulator, Comishun Namian, is currently finalising an online safety code to regulate video sharing platforms, but it won't be ready until later this year. In its ruling, the EU Court of Justice said, in addition to the €2.5 million fine, it's also ordering Ireland to pay a daily penalty of €10,000 for as long as the failure to comply with the directive continues. Today's ruling notes that the deadline was missed by most EU member states, but it also highlights that Ireland is the member state where the largest number of video-sharing platforms are established. A man has been found not guilty of the murders of Catholic workmen Eamon Fox and Gary Convey in North Belfast in 1994. The judge expressed concerns about the credibility of evidence from the prosecution's star witness, a former UVF commander who agreed to become a so-called supergrass. More than 30,000 Palestinians have now been killed in Gaza since October 7th, according to the Hamas-run health ministry. The majority were women and children. In the latest violence, dozens of Palestinians are reported to have been killed while waiting for food aid west of Gaza City. Hamas authorities say 104 people were killed. Israeli sources confirmed troops fired after feeling threatened by the crowds. 
President Vladimir Putin has warned Western countries that there is a genuine risk of nuclear war if they sent their own troops to fight in Ukraine. As he said, Moscow had the weapons to strike targets in the West. Addressing parliamentarians and other members of the country's elite earlier, President Putin suggested Western leaders did not understand how dangerous their meddling could be in what he cast as Russia's own internal affairs. Ryanair has said it will not be growing its routes in and out of Dublin this summer because of the passenger cap at the airport. Launching its summer schedule, the company warned the cap is also blocking its plan to grow Irish traffic by 50% between now and 2030. Our business editor, Will Goodbody. Launching its summer schedule, Ryanair said it will open 80 new routes across Europe and grow passenger numbers by around 16 million as up to 50 new aircraft come on stream. But none of that growth will happen in Dublin, it says, because passenger numbers at that airport have hit the 32 million passengers per year cap put in place by planning authorities. The airline says the cap is also blocking its plans to grow passenger traffic in and out of Ireland by 50% by 2030. Chief Executive Michael O'Leary once again called for the Minister for Transport, Eamon Ryan to act to have the cap lifted or resign. Concern about the effects of the passenger cap was also expressed by Aer Lingus today as it reported profits of 225 million euro for last year. Chief Executive Lynn Embleton said the cap is a serious issue, is not being well managed and will have serious consequences if it isn't lifted for jobs, the airlines and the economy. But Eamon Ryan has previously said it's not appropriate for him to intervene in the planning process, a position echoed by Minister for Public Expenditure Pascal Donoghue this morning, who said the issue needs to be dealt with through the planning system. And now the weather. RTE Radio 1 Weather with Grant. For highly efficient, sustainable home heating for your new build, choose Grant's A++ rated Aerona heat pump. Visit grant.ie. Today will be cold with sunny spells and scattered showers of rain or hail. There will be isolated thunderstorms too. Highest temperatures, 5 to 8 degrees. And as a warning, northwesterly winds will reach gale or strong gale force tonight and tomorrow morning on Irish coastal waters from Roaches Point to Mizzenhead to Loophead. Brian. Thank you, Brian. Still to come this lunchtime, the death toll in Gaza reaches 30,000, according to Hamas, as UNICEF warns that one in six children are acutely malnourished. We talk to UNICEF's James Elder. Iraq drops charges against jailed as Irish citizen Yasser al-Jabouri. We hear from his wife, Laura Wickham. An expert in internet law on why Ireland has been fined €2.5 million over an EU directive on video sharing platforms. Spending Minister Pascal Donoghue defends an HSE redundancy payout of €400,000 and inflation drops to 2.2% as cost of living pressures appear to ease. Did you know that you can spread the cost of your TV licence across the year? Set up a direct debit now and pay just 13.33 a month. If you have a TV, you must have a TV licence. It's the law. See tvlicense.ie for more. Brought to you by the Government of Ireland. Urban Aaron make vibrant, soft merino knitwear right here in Ireland. It looks great. This is radio, so you just have to trust us. They send their pieces all over Ireland. And they save up to €76 Euro on parcel labels with their on-post commerce advantage card. 
gives great discounts to your business. It also looks pretty great. Get your Advantage card at onpost.com slash Advantage card to save on every stamp you stick and every parcel you send. Onpost Commerce, a world closer. T's and C's apply. Hello again, you're listening to the News at One. The death toll from the war in Gaza has now exceeded 30,000, according to the Hamas-controlled health ministry. Dozens of Palestinians are today said to have been killed while waiting for food aid west of Gaza City. Israeli sources confirmed the troops opened fire after feeling threatened by crowds. Hamas says the majority of those who've died since the war began are women and children, but it does not give a breakdown between civilian casualties and Hamas fighters who have died in the fighting nor was it giving any information about the estimated 130 Israeli hostages in Gaza, some of whom may no longer be alive. Israel has been demanding the release of all hostages as part of ceasefire negotiations. During leaders' questions in the Doyle today, Sinn Féin's Matt Carthy and Thorsha Michal Martin clashed on the subject. Children in Gaza are being starved at the fastest rate that the world has ever recorded, with one in six children under two years in northern Gaza now acutely malnourished. What Israel is doing on a daily basis is barbaric. The latest cold-blooded massacre of civilians in Nabsley Square who were gathering flour from aid trucks has seen dozens of civilians killed and hundreds more wounded. You previously failed to support motions calling on Ireland to intervene in the case against Israel at the International Court of Justice brought by South Africa. Can I ask you, do you accept that what is happening in Gaza is genocide? The international community has a responsibility to end the barbarity that we are witnessing in Gaza. And Ireland, of course, has a role to play. We must insist on the adherence to international law. And we must insist on consequences for those in gross violation of that international law. You kind of use language that's not quite accurate or correct. You said we failed to intervene. We have not failed to intervene in any case. And you know that deep down, but you're just playing politics again, unfortunately, with it and seeking to divide us and trying to sort of create this wedge issue. South Africa itself has not filed a memorial on on that case yet. We need hostages released. We need this war to stop. There can be no um, um, incursion into into Rafa. Uh, We have been one of the first out to say stop pausing uh, aid to UNRWA. And we've come up with a 20 million allocation early Thank this you. year, some weeks ago, to demonstrate our clear focus on relieving humanitarian crisis that, that Gazans are facing. Thorsa Michal Martin. Well, James Elder is spokesperson for the United Nations Children's Agency, UNICEF. In what conditions, I asked him, are children in Gaza now living? Utterly horrendous. Brian, and to think that somehow, despite the numbers that you just shared, things actually worsen day in, day out. Obviously, that's the case because of the desperation of people. If we had a ceasefire right now, we would have a humanitarian crisis based on the lethal lack of food, the soaring rates of malnutrition amongst the most vulnerable citizens, little children, the lack of water, the disease on the rise. And now, amid that, in the last few hours, we're seeing the, the dozen scores of people reportedly killed as they were trying to get aid today. It's difficult enough to get aid to 
people. They were waiting for seemingly a food distribution. It sounds like dozens of people have been killed while that's happening. It's, again, the horrors befalling those in Gaza is mind-bogglingly, Brian, worsened day in, day out. How grave is the health threats, particularly to to children in Gaza, um, perhaps to to pregnant uh, women, um, to to, to babies, particularly in in, in terms of, of malnutrition, access to adequate nutritional food? terrible it's simply not there it's unicef is well adept at dealing with nutrition crises on the back of a climate or a protracted issue but in this in having people locked into a space and because they simply are not being allowed the access we see rates of like 15 percent of of the youngest children with a dangerous form of malnutrition in the north that's skyrocketing to any level it should be interestingly it's three times higher in the north than the south because the south we can get some aid into brian for a long time on top of this so you're being bombarded ferociously you're being forced to move you don't have shelter you don't have food we've warned of disease we now have estimates that something like nine out of ten children in gaza have had one or two infectious diseases very recently two-thirds or more of them um, have had diarrhea so their systems are being broken down they don't have the nutrition to support them or the clean water they certainly don't have the medical care we're starting to see those deaths from disease and a lack of food on top of the many, many thousands of children killed from the bombardment. How acute is the situation in relation to access to safe drinking water? It, it, it doesn't exist. It's incredibly acute. It has been. We can throw too many numbers, Brian, but in a full-blown emergency, the minimum level of water a person should get a day would be 15 litres. That's to drink, that's to clean, to keep away disease, to wash, 15 litres. Many people in Gaza, including children, are accessing two or three litres of water a day. That, coupled with disease will be, is being lethal, remembering that as children go to get water, as they go somewhere to try and access food from a friend, from a family, somewhere, they then put themselves in the line of fire, as we've seen today, from the very real threat of continued continued attacks from the sky and the ground. UNICEF is calling, it has been calling for some time, for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. We had President Biden this week talking about the possibility of perhaps of a cessation being agreed as early as next week. Is UNICEF hearing anything at the moment that would suggest that a ceasefire could be close? No. Um, I mean, there are a lot of behind closed doors discussions. So, you know, they are happening at the highest levels from the United Nations and all the parties that you know. <laughs> We've had one moment where we saw aid flow in in late November when I was actually in Gaza and we can see the difference that will make not only for the obvious to stop the bombs falling, but we can get the kind of critical level of aid in that starts to make a difference. To think that wouldn't happen. In fact, if, if, if we don't have a ceasefire, we are continually told potentially, Brian, an offensive into Rafa. Remembering Rafa now is a city of children. Rafa had a couple of hundred thousand people in it three, four months ago. It's now got six, seven hundred thousand children. Any offensive there um, would be utterly catastrophic. It would be unimaginable. You've got children living out, children in tents, children back to back and 50 people in tents to think of a military offensive in there, which is a discussion that we hear would considerably add to the already appalling death toll of children in Gaza. 
among among your demands in UNICEF is that there will be an immediate hostage release as well by people who, Israelis who were taken on, on October 7th. Um, the Israelis also talking about uh, the ground offensive in Rafah been accompanied by some sort of evacuation of, of civilians. Is It's a question that's asked repeatedly, but is, is there anywhere for those civilians in Rafah at the moment to go? No, there, there's not. And we have to be very clear on that. Yeah, that, that those Israeli hostages, in whatever hellish conditions they continue to endure, including children, need to go home. And, the, and their torment and their families' torments get them back into Israel. The idea, though, that any offensive into Rafa people could move somewhere else, it doesn't exist. Either you have got huge numbers of unexploded ordnance uh, on the ground or you've got more than two-thirds of homes and of buildings that have been destroyed or you've got people in the north who who are in nutritional situations that are bordering, we are told, famine. There's never been anywhere safe to go given the indiscriminate nature of this war. That was the case two months ago. It's only deteriorated. So, again, it is ceasefire is the only possible option both so we get the hostages home and so more Palestinian children are not killed whether it's from the air or whether it's from disease on the ground. James Elder spokesman for UNICEF. The Court of Justice of the European Union has imposed a fine of two and a half million euro on Ireland for failing to put in place an EU directive on the provision of audiovisual services. Ireland also has to pay a daily penalty of ten thousand euro for as long as the failure to comply with the directive continues. Responding to the decision in a statement this lunchtime, the Department of Media said Ireland is quote completely committed to implementing the directive into Irish law and that full implementation quote will be achieved once. Commission Namyan adopts online safety and media services codes. Well, Michael O'Doherty is a barrister specialising in internet law and he's on the line now. Michael, thank you for talking to us this lunchtime. Perhaps you might explain to our listeners what, what measures should have been put in place by the authorities here under this directive, the absence of which has led to this fine. Uh, so, just by way of background, the Audiovisual Media Services Directive was adopted way back in November 2018. And the main purpose of that was to expand the list of broadcasters who were regulated by EU legislation. Previously, it was traditional broadcasters such as yourselves or video-on-demand broadcasters, Netflix, for example, would have been subject to EU legislation. And the purpose of the directive was to include what are called video-sharing platform services into that. So these are the platforms that allow users to upload content to them, audiovisual content, typically uh, platforms such as YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, and the likes. So the idea was to regulate that type of content, as well as the more traditional broadcasting. Now, it being a directive, um, EU member states were given two years to bring in their own legislation and were given fairly broad discretion as to how they would implement this legislation. Clearly, November 2020 has come and gone, so we are we are way in default of that date. Um, I, there are mitigating reasons why we're in default. Um, I mean, the, 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 the first two things really that have to be done are you first of all have to designate who is a video sharing platform, mm. uh, according to your own opinion. And Ireland only got around to doing that last month in November, or sorry, in January of 2024. And they designated 10 platforms. And even that has not been without its problems because two of those platforms, Tumblr and Reddit, have already said they're going to appeal 
their classification as a video sharing platform. So that might well delay matters. The, the fact that there's a particular focus on Ireland presumably is at least in part explained, I mean, a focus from the point of view of the, the European Union on Ireland is explained presumably at least in part by the fact that many of these platforms are headquartered here, or at least their European operations are headquartered here. Yes, th- that's right. And the important issue about that is that decisions made by Kamashun Man in relation to the regulation of platforms, of um, video sharing platforms, which have their EU headquarters in Ireland, those decisions will have pan-European effect. So all the other EU member states will be obliged to follow any decision that we make here. That's, you know, mm. why this is so important from an Irish perspective. And what's at stake here is, is regulation in terms of harmful content, hate speech, all the issues, the concerns that people have around um, how, how these platforms go about their business. Yes, exactly. It's, it's the degree to which these platforms will be obliged to deal with um, hate speech terrorist material, the worst times types of um, harmful online material and the imposition of rules and re- uh, requirements on them to either block the material or to take it down within a certain kind of specified amount of time and if they don't, potentially the imposition of fines on them for failing to do so. And the other delay is the fact that the, the online safety code, which is the rules and regulations under which these platforms will be obliged uh, to operate, that hasn't yet been finalised by the Online Safety Commission either. And the directive cannot be fully transposed until that online safety code, which is currently at a public consultation phase, it can't be fully transposed until that code is in place. Meanwhile, we pay €10,000 a day in uh, in penalties. Michael, thank you very much for talking to us. That's uh, Barrister Michael O'Doherty. To Belfast next, where a man has been found not guilty of murdering two Catholic workmen who were shot dead by the Ulster Volunteer Force in 1994. James Stuart Smith, who is 57, from Forth River Link in Belfast, had denied the murders of Gary Convey and Eamon Fox. The men were killed as they ate lunch in a car at a building site in Belfast. A key witness in the trial was former UVF man turned loyalist supergrass Gary Haggerty. Well, from all we can talk to our Northern editor Vincent Kearney, who's on the line, um, Vincent, I suppose, particular focus on this case because it was the, the use of, of the evidence of, of this supergrass. Uh, indeed, Brad, and that was uh, central to this case. Um, before he delivered his verdict this morning, Mr Justice O'Hara went through the key evidence uh, against James Smith. Uh, that was DNA evidence from a, a coat uh, found wrapped around a machine gun uh, used in the murders of Eamon Fox and Gary Convey. Uh, and Gary Haggerty, the, the UVS Supergrass, had said James Smith wore it on the day of the, the shooting. Uh, the judge said he couldn't be satisfied that was actually the case based on the evidence of, of Gary Haggerty. Um, he questioned the reliability and credibility of Gary Haggerty's evidence. In fact, said he had some he had very serious concerns about it. But the key factor we identified in this was a discrepancy between eyewitness accounts and what Gary Haggerty said about the gunman. James Smith is five foot four inches tall. Now the judge said himself that is short for a man. Um, a number of eyewitnesses put the gunman in these attacks are between five foot eight and five foot ten. Uh, one eyewitness described him as a tall, thin man. James Smith is short and stout uh, and 
the, the judge, Mr. Justin O'Hara, said he simply couldn't reconcile the, those eyewitnesses accounts and the actual height of James Smith. And he said he had significant doubts that Eamon Fox and Gary Convey were murdered by a gunman who was just five foot four inches tall. Mm-hmm. Now, now, Gary Haggerty had, had put um, Smith very firmly in the frame for this, um, but as I said, the judge did just could not reconcile what Gary Haggerty said about the gunman and what eyewitnesses said about mm-hmm. what they saw. And who is Gary Haggerty and how did he come to be this key prosecution witness? Well, Gary Haggerty was a former UVF commander in North Belfast. He was also a, a paid um, RUC special branch agent for more than 10 years. He's the most senior lawyer ever to become a so-called supergrass. And what he did, Brian, was he agreed to give evidence against his former uh, colleagues in UVF in return for a much reduced sentence. He, he, he pleaded guilty to more than 500 offences, including five murders, a series of attempted murders, and other very serious crimes. In return for that, he would give evidence. Now, as it turns out, this is the only trial, we understand, where he will be used to give evidence. Um, he was the key prosecution witness, although the prosecution itself admitted during the trial it had deep concerns about him. They, the prosecution themselves described him as deeply flawed. They admitted he was a liar. They often made up accounts that, it, that, that he often diminished his own role in, in terrorist activities. Uh, so the judge uh, today made it clear he was not that impressed with Gary Haggerty at all and could not place any reliability or credibility in what he said. Has there been any reaction from the families of Gary Convey of Eamon Fox? Uh, there, there, there has indeed, Brian, and, and worth pointing out there were some unsavoury scenes that just as the judge delivered his verdict, a small number of supporters of Gene Smith in court um, shouted uh, a bit triumphantly and the judge told him to be quiet. And then James Smith himself and that small group of supporters had to be escorted out of the court building by security staff after taunting the families of, of Eamon Fox and Gary Convey as they left the courtroom. Uh, and outside, a solicitor for the families, Padraig Murray, uh, made it clear how disappointed they are. The Convey and Fox family are devastated uh, by today's uh, verdict. It's been a long journey for them and a very disappointing end uh, to that. And I think this case highlights the deficiencies in the criminal justice system dealing with matters like this, where you're relying on an assistant offender, a convicted criminal and a notorious UVF unit. That is always going to be highly problematic in a criminal trial. Vincent, just on another matter, news coming in this lunchtime that the Public Prosecution Service in Northern Ireland has decided not to prosecute 12 people, I think, who were reported in relation to the Operation Canova inquiry. This is the investigation into the alleged activities of the agent known as State Knife. Indeed, this has been a six-year uh, operation, Operation Canova. It's cost more than £40 million. Pounds. Today, uh, the Public Prosecution Service have announced that there's insufficient evidence uh, to, to prosecute um, five retired British soldiers and seven alleged IRA members. Now, this is just the latest batch of new prosecutions. We had another group uh, announced in December uh, and then another batch announced uh, earlier this month. So, in all, what this means, Brian, is that this six-year investigation that's cost more than £40 million has resulted in not a single prosecution. Now, those involved in the Canova team will say that wasn't their sole purpose, that many families don't want prosecutions, they don't want convictions, they want to learn the truth about their families and what happened to their loved ones. Now, the report, the interim report um, from from the Canova team will be published next Friday. Um, they're keen to stress that it will provide answers to many questions and will satisfy, they say, many families. But it's hard to go away from the fact, Brian, that an operation that costs more than £40 million pounds to six years has not resulted in a single prosecution. Vincent, thanks for that. Our Northern Editor, Vincent Carney there.
Next to that news of an exit payment of almost €400,000 to a departing HSE executive. In a statement, the HSE said Dean Sullivan, who worked as Deputy Director General and Chief Strategy Officer for six years, left his position by agreement with a redundancy of €388,000 and had agreed to waive confidentiality with regards to the amount paid. This lunchtime, the Minister of Public Expenditure, Pascal Donoghue, said the payment was the outcome of a legal process and in line with government policy for such redundancy programmes. This is the outcome of a legal process and I think the important thing is to recognise that there was a a legal component to all of this. Uh, That was the outcome of a mediation process that was chaired by a senior counsel and then all of the other severance elements of it are in line uh, with the relevant uh, HR policy uh, for our public service. Uh, What we are doing is that information has been made publicly available uh, so that there is transparency in terms of how the matter concluded. Speaking in Waterford, Mr Donoghue was also asked if he felt such confidentiality should be waived in other situations, including the redundancy packages agreed with departing RTE executives. I am aware of the importance of transparency in these matters. Uh, And, of course, uh, this has been highlighted by the recent public debate regarding RTE. With regard to the RTE uh, settlements, I do have to respect the legal advice uh, that uh, defined the conclusion of those processes. Uh, But here, uh, uh, as this was the outcome of a legal process, uh, it has been agreed uh, that there can be transparency around the outcome. I think that is appropriate. Sinn Féin spokesperson on health David Cullinan has said he welcomes the fact that confidentiality has been waived on this occasion. There has to be accountability and transparency. We've seen it in RTE. We've seen issues in relation to secondments, which have been a problem. And then we see it in relation to these type of exit payments. And what we need is absolute transparency. I do welcome the fact that there was at least a wavering of the uh, confidentiality agreement in this instance. We know what the amount is. But I think there is more that the department and the HSE need to do to inform us as to how this came about. What were the circumstances behind it? How did they arrive at the figure? because for the vast, vast majority of people these are huge amounts of money it's taxpayers' money and there has to be absolute full accountability and transparency. David Cullinan of Sinn Féin. The latest flash estimate of inflation from the Central Statistics Office shows that the annual rate slowed to 2.2% in the year to February from 2.7% in January. Today's CSO figures show that energy prices are estimated to have risen by 0.5% in February on a monthly basis but were down 6.3% compared to the same time last year. Well, for more, we can talk by talk to Conal McQuilla, Chief Economist with Bank of Ireland. Conal, thanks very much indeed for talking to us this lunchtime. Is this really a story about what's happening on the energy front? It is. um, You know, gas prices are down across Europe, uh, oil prices as well. So energy prices are down 6% year on year. Now, of course, households are seeing their incomes uh, in real terms uh, eaten into by higher energy prices. This only uh, partially unwinds some of that. Uh, But if you exclude energy and food, um, you know, inflation is running around 3%. So, I suppose the bigger picture is that some of the supply chain disruption we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic has resolved itself. Uh, clearly, the kind of double-digit rates of inflation, which hurt a lot of people's spending power, are, are in the past. Um, the rate's down to 2.2%. That's the slowest pace of price increases 
we've seen since around two and a half years in the middle of 2021. So it is good news. It's not just energy and food. It's slightly broader than that. And it's also the case that for some at least, wages are rising faster than inflation. They're perhaps clawing back some of the grounds that they lost during this uh, surge in prices. Indeed, we saw the figures just last week from the CSO that wage growth in the private sector is running around 3.5%. So for the first time now in a couple of years, we're seeing wage growth in excess of these price increases. Um, so again, households lost spending power as energy prices went up. That's been partially reversed. We're starting to gain some of that back. As well as that, we need to remember that in the budget, uh, the tax cuts would have boosted disposable incomes at the average wage by around 2% by a higher amount for those in lower incomes. So, you know, households have been squeezed. Uh, this is good news today that, you know, inflation is now below the pace of pay growth and some of those budget measures will help disposable incomes as well. So that's good news for consumer spending uh, and it means people will be under a little bit less pressure uh, this year than they were in, in the past. Mm, there been an expectation in the markets at least towards the end of last year, maybe into the early part of this year, that the ECB would be moving sooner rather than later on cutting interest rates. What's the latest feeling? Uh, well, we saw inflation in Europe fall to 2.7% in January. We get the first estimate for February uh, tomorrow. Uh, so there's clearly been a difference of view across the ECB governing council. Uh, some pe- some members saying that you know rate cuts won't happen for quite some time. Others saying they could happen almost immediately. At last month's press conference, Christine Lagarde said the governing council agreed it was too early to talk about rate cuts, but she herself expected them to start in the summer. So, look, I think with an economy that's close to recession with inflation coming down towards the ECB's 2% target, it's only really a matter of time uh, before the deposit rate is cut from 4%. Uh, I suppose most people would probably expect that's more likely to happen around June, July, uh, rather than maybe March or April, which some people have speculated will be the case. Connell McCrilla, Chief Economist with Bank of Ireland, thank you very much for that. Tributes have been paid to 10-year-old Dylan Cody Coleman, who died in hospital following a road crash in County Clare on Sunday. He was a fourth-class pupil at St. Tolos National School in Shannon, who today described him as much-loved, with a gorgeous smile and a kind heart that endeared him to everyone. He was struck by a van at Purcell Road in Shannon on Sunday afternoon and died at the Children's Hospital in Temple Street in Dublin yesterday. Dylan's family have welcomed a little brother born earlier this week. Dylan was also a member of Shannon Town United Football Club and a short while ago our reporter Carol Coleman spoke to club secretary Jared Kelly who has known Jared since he was four years old. Um, one, of my, one of my earliest memories of Dylan would have, would have been, been coming up the pitch with his baby sister toe in hand and wearing his Liverpool gears and he'd big massive smile on his face you know big mop of red hair he was just such he was such a lovely kid um, such a lovely lovely kid Did he love his sport? Yeah he did like, I was, like he was a big big Liverpool fan and uh, he loved his soccer even even when he wasn't training he'd always be above on the pitch he'd always have a football um, well when I would have seen him he'd always be playing um, even in school um, talking to his teachers and he, he loved his sport he absolutely loved his sport. So there's a dark cloud hanging over the area today. What are people saying? How are people feeling? Uh, I suppose the whole town's in, in a state of shock. Um, it's devastated. Um, it's just a really, really sombre mood around the town. It's a it's a small town, a population of around ten thousand people, and everybody knows each other. And it's it's just it's it's really really sad, and not just for Dylan and his family, and for the other family as well. Um, it's but it's really really it's a sad time really for the town.
And a heartbreaking aspect of this is that he did get to meet his new sibling before he passed away. Yeah, um, I suppose that's one of the heartbreaking things that we've all been seeing in Shannon. It was that um, his baby brother got to meet him. Um, it's Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Um, but he did really get to, to see his brother before he passed away. Um, and it's, 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 it's so sad when you see the photograph of his baby brother. Um, it's, it is really, really sad at this time. And that's Jared Kelly of Shannon Town United Football Club paying tribute there to 10-year-old Dylan Cody Coleman. Back with more after this short break. The Hillary's Big Winter Sale is ending soon. Book your free in-home appointment today and you can still save up to half price on hundreds of made-to-measure blinds, curtains and shutters. Plus get free thermal lining on our favourite curtains and Roman blinds. Don't forget, measuring and fitting is always included. So why risk getting it wrong at your windows? But be quick. Sale ends the 11th of March. Book your free in-home appointment today. Visit hillarys.ie. Hillary's Big Winter Sale for the window wise. Conditions apply. OGE Radio 1. Marty Pello proudly presents Popped In, Sold Out with the RTE Concert Orchestra. Live at 3 Arena Dublin, March 10th, 2024. Tickets available now. Proudly presented by Singular Artists. Music updates on RTE Radio 1. Hello again, you're listening to the news at one. The family of an Irish citizen who has been held in jail in Iraq say the charges he was facing are to be dropped. Anti-corruption advocate Yasser El-Jabouri, who holds an Irish passport, was arrested on Monday morning at Baghdad Airport. He appeared in court in the Iraqi capital this morning, where he was informed the charges against him are to be dropped. He was also released on bail. Mr El-Jabouri's wife, Laura Wickham, has been speaking of the family's reaction to our reporter, Kate Egan. We received news um, today that the charges had been dropped against him in his court appearance today and um, he was being released. Um, the Taunashta was also in touch with me to say that he was on to the foreign minister and uh, that he was being released. So that has happened and he's released uh, on bail for paperwork for, I think, a, a number of days. Um, so it's it's a great, great step in, in the right direction and it is a uh, relief, but... I'm still trying to put as much pressure as I can to get him on a plane back on Irish soil. And while the charges have been dropped, they're still holding on to his passport. Yes, yeah, they still have his passport. The uh, message I'm receiving is that there's two to three days paperwork. Um, that's the conditions of the bail. Uh, I'm being advised that... Um, it is a great step in the right direction, but sometimes this is the tricky part. You know, um, it's really important that we keep uh, keep the pressure on and, you know, make sure that, you know, because there is, there is a certain sigh of relief that the, the charges are dropped in court, but that he comes home, like that he that we get him home, that we get him, he gets his passport back and he gets back to Dublin to me and his kids. So. And how is he? He's good. He's uh, tired. He's uh, emotional, but he is a bit relieved. Uh, yeah. I had a very brief call, a video call with him and um, he's he's good, he's good. It's just so overwhelming, the whole thing is so overwhelming. And how has the family been since they heard the news? They're great, they're 
emotional. We're all really emotional. Uh, it, it's just a kind of a, a weird kind of limbo, but it is a relief. And uh, my kids are still going through their routine day. Now today, uh, obviously, because this has gone on since like Sunday night really was the last time we had contact with them. Uh, and they miss him. They're, t- they're vocal about dad now, uh, where they haven't been so far. So, uh, hopefully we'll get to do a, a, another video call maybe later to, so where they can see him and then that will be reassurance. But, um, again, I'm so cautious that it's kind of halfway and there's another half to go, you know? I'm really, really grateful to the Donishta and to the DFA for the pressure that they've put on. Um, and I hope, I really hope that that continues until he's back in Dublin airport. Laurel Wickham speaking there to Kate Egan. Well, today is a special day for 12-year-old Ben Caffrey. He celebrates his birthday today, February 29th. Being born in a leap year, it's just the third time he's been able to celebrate on the day itself. He and his classmates at St Andrews National School in County Meath have been speaking to our reporter Molly O'Connor. It's my birthday and I'm a leap year. So uh, this is my third birthday. (laughs) And when do you normally celebrate your birthday? I like to milk it, so I usually celebrate it on the 1st of March and the 28th of February. (laughs) So you get a two-day birthday? Yeah. Okay, and how does that feel? It's cool and it's kind of fun as well, because when I don't have the real birthday, at least I know I have those two days before and after. And how does it feel to actually be celebrating your birthday on your actual birthday? It's kind of odd. (laughs) This is my third time celebrating it on... proper day so uh, it's ben's leap you boat day and is ben your brother yeah and what age is ben today he's 12 and three and what age are you uh six so what do you think of being older than your older brother i don't it's kind of nice and kind of i don't know there's a 0.07 percent chance of being born on a leap year and it's one out of 1,461 people. The Earth approximately takes 365.25 days to orbit around the Sun, and that is called a solar year. We usually round the days in a calendar year to 365. To make up for the missing quarter of a day every four years, we add an extra day in the calendar. If we didn't count this extra day, the seasons will drift. That means that when we usually expect summer in June, it will change in about 700 years to starting in December. Sports on RTE Radio 1. Now, here's Joanne Cantwell, Joanne. Thank you, Brian. Good afternoon. There's a host of Irish golfers in first-round action across several venues and continents. On the PGA Tour, Rory McIlroy and Shane Lowry are among the early starters at the Cognizant Classic. McIlroy, who you may have noticed yesterday, made some tongue-in-cheek comments when answering a question relating to a potential shock move to live golf. He's begun with birdie. He's now played three holes, so one under par. Lowry has opened with four straight pars. The early lead is three under, and we see Paul Carrington in action a little bit later on. Tom McKibben is going well in South Africa where the DP World Tour is based for the STC Championship. He had three birdies in a clean front nine but he has just had his first bogey on the 10th so he's down to two under. Peter Moolman leads the way on seven under par there. Qualifier Richie O'Donovan from Dublin who plays on the Sunshine Tour circuit ordinarily he's dropped three shots over his fifth and sixth hole so he's down the leaderboard on three over par but with loads of his first round still to go. And over in Singapore, Leona Maguire's two shots off the lead in the HSBC World Championship event. That's long over the opening round. The Cavan woman finished on two under par after bogeying her final hole but she is still in the top five. Sarah Schmelzel of the US leads on four under par. 
The former Manchester United midfielder Paul Pogba has been banned for four years for a doping offence from earlier this season. The World Cup winner with France is currently with Juventus and he was provisionally suspended by Italy's National Anti-Doping Tribunal in September after testing positive for testosterone, a banned substance. And now it's being reported that the sports prosecutor's request for a four-year ban has been granted. In rugby, Gary Ringrose has trained in full with Ireland for the first time since injuring his shoulder. So that keeps him on course for return to action in time for next week's Six Nations game against England in Twickenham. And Constitution Hill was reported by Nicky Henderson to be looking alert and bright this morning. But until the champion hurdler is scoped again tomorrow... His...